Welcome back to Significant Watches Podcast. It is episode, what, 46? Is this uh, 46, guys? Sounds about right. Yeah. We are coming off a hot morning of news. There is acquisitions, both personal and company-wise. I guess the uh, the news that took the world by storm was the Universal Geneva acquisition by Breitling. We'll get into that in a moment, but I want to check in with my co-host, Tony Trena. What's up, baby? Oh, Charlie, thanks so much for having me on the show. You're I welcome. was in New York last week, and I briefly ran into to one Wind Vintage. Uh, he was out there schlocking modern watches for the week, but it was good to see him briefly at, uh, at Sotheby's Important yeah, Watches sale. Yeah, the Zodiac Rowing Blazers. <laughs> we had our own party the other day. We had a pizza party for the Wind Vintage staff. That was an epic one. Yeah. Consisted of just two people, but we, uh, we enjoyed it. We had a good time. Tony, uh, thanks for letting me know about the latest gossip in, in New York. Eric, what's up with you? I heard you had a little bit of a run-in at the Sotheby's auction. Some controversy, some kicks thrown? Not really, but, uh, <laughs> you know, there's, uh, there's uh, I don't know what to say, but there's dealers that are always unhappy with what I'm doing. They're unhappy when I wake up in the morning, and they're unhappy when I go to sleep at night, so that's life. How's the Zodiac release party? I didn't go to it. You missed out, but someone had to ship out all the watches we're selling every day, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was kind of a dream come true to do the Rochefoucauld watch uh, that Jack Carlson and I have dreamed of doing for many years. So we're happy that's out, and people seem to be loving it a lot. Yeah, the blue was pretty popping. I liked it. Um... I think that's my favorite of the Zodiac releases, the two. Yeah, for sure. That's cool. Tony, did you get hands-on with the watch or not? No, I, I, I didn't, but I saw various TikTokers, other influencers of much more report were, were at the party. So I, I stand a, you know, rest assured that the party, was, the party and the release were well covered, and Eric is much too cool for me nowadays. Do you have, do you have a TikTok, Tony? Because no. I get notifications on your shorts on your YouTube page, but I don't, I don't know if you have a YouTube or a TikTok. No, absolutely not. Does it win vintage? No, we don't. I, don't, I deleted TikTok, but I sometimes will check in. We got to get it's on a that, it's, I respect it, but it's very addicting. IG is well, do you guys want to talk New York auctions recap real quick? Yeah, why not? What's, uh, what's the scoop? Eric, you want to kick it over? Sure. So it was an eventful week of auctions in new york i thought for me of the three auction houses sotheby's phillips and christie's i thought sotheby's won the week even though they didn't have as as much in terms of total value as phillips i thought there was a lot more energy with the sotheby's auction they had a lot of interesting historic watches the hammer collection was very well received by the collector community you know with a lot of cool stuff from obviously vintage Rolex to even a modern Rolex that saw a world record free dive, which uh, our fellow horological homie Gabe actually bought after uh, being missing out on the 5514 Comex Submariner that was used to recover millions of dollars of gold uh, that had been on its way from Russia to England to pay for armaments during World War II as when was sunk by U-boats. 
Uh, that was a really cool video that Sotheby's did. Um, but Gabe, as a consolation prize, won a more modern Rolex uh, that was used for a free dive in 2017 that he did very well on. Uh, and I thought they did really, really well. The John Player Special was the nicest one I've seen, sort of unusual in 14 karat gold. Uh, that went to a collector in the Middle East for just over $1.5 million. Um, I bid on it uh, a couple couple bids for a client, but no luck. Um, the other, the other uh, speaking of Rolex, there was also the uh, record for an Explorer, correct? I mean, the Space Dweller was the highest paid for an Explorer. Yeah, that was at uh, Phillips. Um, so that was very strong. Given that the dial was probably not born in the case, it was a very strong result, uh, in my view. Um, Tony, what did you think? And so, yeah, just just a hat tip to Jeff Hess. I thought he did a great job. He looked extremely tired after, like he had just uh, been in, you know, a fifteen round fight with a heavyweight. He looked super tired. You know, Jeff. Uh, I think it's it's different being the big boss versus like number two in a department because you've got all these people ex- with high expectations of your time, either trying to buy or trying to sell. They had one really cool Longines watch that they withdrew before the auction uh, due to the lack of interest, bidding interest, unfortunately. Uh, but you've got to deal with a lot of high drama people and it's a lot of money at stake. And I think Jeff, who's pretty well beloved and likes to be loved by everyone it's can be it can be hard but uh i thought they did really they had a really interesting mix of modern vintage uh and great watches and the, uh, christie's i thought did well for 107 lots over 11 million you know i think it was just six months ago they were under 5 million and uh only had like under 80% sell-through rate. It was super low sell-through rate with a huge amount of passes. So that was a, a great recovery for them. And, you know, Phillips had a high, a high, obviously, value of what they sold, but not really any single lot that you could necessarily grab onto. It's like they're storytelling lot there wasn't like a the casio the, the casio ai four hundred thousand dollars what do you think of that, that thing is movie? wild though seriously what is it like in, in person, person? absolute cool brick person. of gold it's actually pretty cool is it four hundred thousand dollars cool no but it, you know it's for charity so whatever i guess but it's a pretty cool thing how heavy was it uh a couple pounds have you like, watched you ever held like two platinum daytonas maybe i would say i don't know it was heavy was it kind of so ai designed it was it like alan iverson yeah i wish the question the answer he had the uh, sickest shoes back in the day didn't he reebok forever but uh i think (laughs) i think that the watch to me represents ai run amok when ai is gonna (laughs) become our overlords and we become uh Human race becomes enslaved to AI. Is AI the Eric? Man? Save the. Uh, can you save the existential dread for another podcast? Maybe we're just gonna stick to watches here, my man. No, we're going. We'll be talking about it on Hodinky Radio soon. What, um, um, no, I think you're right. The Sotheby's sale was kind of the highlight for me. Uh, you know, I walked in on Thursday morning. I, I went to probably the first half of it, and honestly, I knew a lot of faces in the room, of course. But it kind of felt like a, it's a really solid sort of just 
collector community gathering, caught up with a few people in the room in between bidding. Gabe was there. He won some pre-Vendome Panerai while I was chatting with him, so that was cool to see. Hopefully he'll be able to to join us to talk about it in a little bit. Uh, he's, he's racing he's, racing home. He said he got pulled over to to the audience that might be wondering where he is. Um, Christie's happened a little earlier in the week, so I didn't pay as much attention to it. But yeah, to your works. point, a, a solid sale in New York, especially after what's been happening in the other Christie's offices. I thought it was a solid solid result to see from them as well. Yeah, I thought. Uh, the, I also get annoyed just as a pet peeve that. The auctions aren't in a row. There's not good coordination between the auction houses like there used to be. Like they would have them back to back, the back days. So obviously, Phillips was Saturday, Sunday. Sotheby's was Thursday, and Christie's was Tuesday. Uh, I had a good friend, uh, a friend of the podcast, Jafari One. Jeff Binstock was in the room at Christie's, and the beginning of the auction, I think there were three people in the room or four. Uh, and it was really, really dead. So it uh, would have been nice if like Christie's was on Friday and kind of sandwiched in between or Sotheby's was moved back a day um, because people don't want to just sit in New York all week if you're not you know, living in the New York area. So uh, they need to re-implement the, the infamous red phone that the Soviets and the Americans had back during the Cold War and they need to communicate and coordinate there their sales. Geneva has kind of got similar problems because they just keep stacking on top of each other where it's an auction on top of an auction on top of an auction. Um, And it'd be nice if they coordinated as well. Uh, In terms of kind of overall market sentiment, I thought Geneva was great overall, better than expected. Hong Kong was kind of seen as a big dud and kind of concerning from my perspective in terms of the amount of passes and low results and then new york was kind of a high so that's good since we have five months until the next uh, series of auctions it kind of kind of sets things on a good trajectory going into 2024 um and uh yeah and i think the other kind of auction news is the zaman auction if we want to talk about that at all uh do you want to lead us off tony uh yeah, I'll say one more thing about New York and then transition over to the Zaman thing. I think it became sort of very clear to me or just like looking at the auction results what is valued by the market and what's not anymore. Um, you know, that JPS going for 1.5 million for example. Eric, I texted you when I saw that really nice pink gold early date just that I I know you saw at one point before it was going into the Sotheby's sale that sold for $93,000. It's a lot of money for an early date just. Yeah. Uh, some really solid vintage results across the board. But then when you see things like a DeFore going for about half a million, a, a Daniels going for or a, a Roger Smith, I should say, uh, going for about the same price, some of those things have really so, sort of reached their plateau and are kind of now on the downward part of their trajectory, it seems. Uh, so it's, you know, it's interesting to see sort of what the market is valuing and, and what sort of plateaued and is on a downward trend now. Yeah, um, and I think that became it. as clear at, in New York as it's been. We've snapped back to reality. Oh, there goes <laughs> gravity. There goes Philip DeFore. There goes all the independence and vintage Breguet chronographs. It's all about uh, vintage Rolex again. <laughs> Not quite, but it is, is back. Good. The I world's back. <laughs> yeah, it was good. The uh, Sorry, were you were going to say something, Tony? No, I was just hoping that you guys are getting ready to to release your Universal Genève stock that I'm sure you've been sitting on waiting well, for this moment. We'll talk about that. <laughs> the, uh, 
Um, so, uh, yeah, just it definitely do four simplicities are coming down. A pink one had passed in uh, in Hong Kong. There's just, you know, they're fantastic watches. I haven't had a client who uh, has wanted one for years. I offered him one back in 2020. It was a 37 millimeter white gold, just under 300K at the time. And it was hard to sell. And then they went up to like a million dollars and now they're coming back. So it's, think he would like to buy one it's just finding the right example at the right price essentially but you know it's uh at the end of the day there's a lot of herd behavior with collectors when people feel something's increasing they hold on tight and uh when they're you know there's a feeling of free fall then it's like sell 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 so um you know if people are there's a lot of herd mentality the end of the day that drives almost 80 percent of buying decisions with trendy stuff um cartier is still in that like i feel like upward trajectory generally it's hard for us to hold on to any when we get it it generally sells pretty quick um but you know if uh, the tables ever turn and it starts to come down a bit then i think we'll see a lot a lot hit the market um so yeah i thought overall it was a good good auction it was kind of interesting from my perspective there were a couple watches i had a crack at before the auction uh one was the uh rolex datejust reference 6105 in essentially brand new condition uh it came from the son of the original owner who uh who contacted me and we were in touch about it of course he had seen a similar watch in yellow gold go for about $300,000 at Monaco Legend. Um, so he had, you know, some dollar signs in his eyes. Um, that was a risky watch for me to buy outright, I felt like, because that's just a very hard watch to value. Like a good one that maybe is unpolished, it's on a strap as well, which is a little bit harder to sell. Um, a good one like but with somewhere and maybe some dial patina might be twenty thousand dollars is a high price honestly and then you've got to figure out what like a perfect one would go for so i offered to take it on consignment essentially and um i thought i could i could sell it for ninety thousand which is basically what it ended up going for and net him over eighty thousand uh he ends up receiving a bit less than that but he tried uh and the other watch that i had been in touch with the original owner on was the 6234 in 14k gold at phillips which i thought you know i thought that watch would benefit from a bracelet being added to it that's period correct which i happen to have and i thought on a bracelet that watch you know which you would disclose as not being original to the watch but as period correct i thought it could have been Eighty to ninety thousand dollars retail, and instead it went for fifty hammer. So the guy, you know, got way less than than he could have gotten. I've seen this happen a few times. A Turnek Ravel that was at Sotheby's in June. The uh, original owner. I thought I could net him a lot higher than he ended up receiving from Sotheby's. So unfortunately, these people all have kind of one shot it's not like they're gonna find more watches and it's kind of a learning experience and that's their one and done uh but 
it's interesting, you know, in almost every case, I thought I could do better for the, the owners than they end up receiving, but certainly in those three cases. Do you call them afterwards and rub it in their face? <laughs> I do call them afterwards and say, congrats. <laughs> and that's about it. So uh, I text them at least. But uh, it's got a burn book of original owners that should have gone with Win Vintage. Yeah, for sure. So it's interesting. Uh, just make sure, sh- you know, I think that in every case, you've you know, you just, I connected, uh, in the case of the gentleman who owned the 6105, I said, here's what I think I, I could think I can net you over $80,000. We're happy to connect you with Sotheby's and Christie's. And, um, I connected them. I gave my thoughts to both auction houses. Christie's offered $20,000 as the low estimate in reserve. Uh, and, uh, Sotheby's Jonathan Burford offered forty thousand, and I obviously a little bit of uh, you know more serious uh, reserve and estimate. So the guy went with that, and uh, you know he did he did well. Very nice guy, and I'm happy for him. And Sotheby's uh, gave me an introductory commission, so I make a little bit of money, which is nice, and it's all good. So. Uh, so I thought it was a uh, yeah, it was nice to see a watch like that do well though. Like it's just exceptional condition. We'll probably see a, not never see a nicer watch. It's something that should be in the Rolex Museum if they don't have something like that, which I don't believe they do. Uh, and uh, it was a really nice result to see. Do you want me to just give a quick update on this Zaman thing? It's kind of in a whole. Yeah pattern right now it's kind of weird i'm not i'm not sure we mentioned it yet but kind of a few weeks after the passion for time sale uh it became clear that zaman was for one reason or another frustrated in the results of the sale or at least the way christie's had handled it and bidders in both the live and the online passion for time sale got a notification that basically said don't hold payment or don't pay on your lots right now because this is subject to an inquiry basically And it became clear that he had filed a lawsuit in civil courts in Geneva, basically trying to pause the sale, um, if not essentially claw his watches back. There was a filing. No, I haven't seen the filing. I have trouble navigating Swiss courts because they're in French. Have you seen it? No, no, I wasn't sure if you had or not. Yeah, I mean, Andy at Bloomberg had had said basically that the code in which he filed it under just says something about the fact that you can challenge an auction house on auction houses results. If there are what you view to be like immoral means or something on which the the auction was, the auction results were obtained. So just like a super generic and general uh, piece of information there, there was supposed to be a hearing on December 11th. We're recording on December 12th and it, the hearing was basically delayed. And what I've been told is that they're probably going to reach a settlement out of court, which is not surprising. I think the entire thing comes down to money, so it's pretty easy to settle something out of court when there's a dollar amount that I'm sure both sides can agree upon. So kind of waiting to hear what happened there, but it sounds like it's going to settle out of court and everyone's going to be happy. It was always kind of an interesting thing. I mean, people had said, 
the the passion for time sale was held in the morning in the afternoon uh zaman was in the room at christie's and he spent more than a million dollars on one lot alone and he was still engaged in hong kong spent a few million dollars across auction houses it sounds like so i think he's still interested in in watches and watch collecting uh i think he was just a little bit frustrated at the time and as to how it was held and you know this is all not to sort of let christie's off the hook i think they probably could have handled things better the way that the third party guarantee was communicated especially delaying the sale as we talked about originally estimating or adjusting the estimates upwards as lots were coming up on the block was really confusing for for collectors and potential bidders on the day but that's kind of where things stand now we'll we'll hear officially i'm sure in the next few days as to what happened but but that's the story eric you guys have anything to add over there i i heard this is all, you know, secondhand information, but I didn't, I didn't realize I've heard uh, that one thing. Originally, Zaman planned to do the auction with Phillips, and all the property was apparently in Phillips' Geneva office. Uh, and then at the last second, he talked to both Sotheby's and Christie's, and he ended up going with Christie's. So uh, Phillips somewhat ignominiously had to transfer $40 million of watches across the city of Geneva to the Christie's Geneva office. Um, and uh, uh, my understanding is that the quote, you know, that entity is really just a finance guy who, you know, is in the hedge fund finance world. And he was in Geneva and uh, he was, he kind of felt burned a little bit because he had, uh, felt that Christie's misrepresented the interest in the watches and he wasn't expecting to purchase 70% of the auction <laughs> and kind of conflicting reports over whether he purchased the Brando or someone else did, um, which was obviously the top lot slash shocked all of us in terms of the end result. Um, so that guy, you know, probably spend over $30 million and his funds might be locked up if he already sent them over to Christie's Geneva. And that's not a uh, wonderful situation. So it's just ugly. You know, I don't, I had heard, you know, rumblings of this guy's Zaman buying watches from various dealers in the, you know, vintage and pre-owned trade. And he sounded unbelievably difficult slash erratic. Um, I had heard that he didn't, you know, Christie's was trying to reach him from like the night before the auction until the time of the auction. And he woke up at like 10 a.m., uh, which is when the auction started in Geneva. And that was why it was delayed. They were trying to get a sign off and really quickly do it. And they knocked it out in an hour. So that might have been part of the, the problem as well. He didn't feel he was fully, you know, awake. Maybe he hadn't had his espressos yet for the day or something. I don't know. But uh, it was all a mess, you know, regardless of what's true and false. Like, it doesn't sound like anyone's happy. Christie's is not happy. Zaman's not happy. Charlie's not happy. <laughs> Charlie's not happy. But uh, it, no one's happy about the situation, which is always a bummer when it's like a lose, lose, lose situation. And, uh, you know, it doesn't sound like the guarantor is happy. <laughs> out buying all these things either so uh no one's happy i think and no one will be happy probably uh not a not a happy ending 
<laughs> yeah, beyond them, I think it's not super helpful for the watch market generally to have, first of all, the way they handled it and having this massive sale and then the first part of the Oak collection coming up right after flooding the market with that many watches was like probably not a great decision to begin with. And then they're paying the price for it now. And, you know, not only them, but like it's kind of a, I don't want to say a black eye on the watch market, but it's like you can paint the narrative that it's not a good look for the watch market, especially the auction space. Uh, as you look across at especially the Oak Oak collection results, for example, and how how rough some of those were, it, it doesn't look good for the space. But but hopefully we'll move past it. You know, as we talked about, the New York sales were were not that bad, especially for good watches. So so hopefully we're we're on to bigger and better things. I was telling uh, Eric yesterday, it was uh, 2023 was the year of auction scandals. 2022 was the year of robberies. It's true. It's true. There have been so many big... I mean, we're going to talk about Universal Genève in a second, but I feel as though there's been so many big stories in 2023 that would have been the story in any any other year, you know? Yeah. Seatmaster scandal to to Zaman to whatever you want to talk about. It's like, it's been nonstop for a while now. Yeah. Cam Wolf had sent out a survey and was like, what's the story of the year? And it's like hard to pick because there's yeah. a lot of different things. What'd you pick, Eric? Uh, Rolex buying Booker. That's right. That's the other one. I, yeah. You know, I think that's going to have long-term reverberations for the retail side of the industry. I think a lot of these retailers are going to be losing Rolex. A lot are already losing Rolex and Patek. Uh, and you know, the doesn't affect me as much on the pre-owned side, obviously, but it'll be interesting just to track it, you know, and, and last year we had Rolex certified pre-owned kind of be announced. So it's a big, big thing as well in a sense, but yeah, it's uh, a lot of different interesting things for sure. And, you know, maybe it's been a lot of watch auction scandals. We've got Zaman, Passion for Time, we've got Only Watch, Omega. also Christie's, the Omega, Frankenstein Speedmaster, which, Despicable. Has, which has crippled <laughs> Omega and their heritage <laughs> department, unfortunately. The Omega market. And hurt the Omega it. market because no one can get extracts. They need to get that back online ASAP. Uh, but yeah, a lot of weird stuff going Well, maybe that's a good transition to the last piece, hopefully, of big news in 2023, which is the news that Breitling, along with their largest shareholder partners group, have announced that they have acquired Universal Genève from Stilex Group, the holding company in Hong Kong that's owned the company or owned the brand name since 1989. Rumor is that they spent $70 million on it, and they are now going to look to revive the brand. They're going to start rolling out things pretty slowly, it sounds like, from from the looks of it. It sounds like there's going to be a focus on on the heritage of the brand, obviously, and doing things the right way, as it were, focusing on things like like in-house manufacturing and, you know, the mid-century design that that Universal Genève is so well known for. Uh, you know, some people are saying that that Eric Wind invented Universal Genève, <laughs> writing about the pole router in what, 2009, Eric? Maybe before anyone yeah. before anyone knew what it was. So I'm sure you've got some some great thoughts on on the news here. I should also mention we've we we've had Fred Mandelbaum on the show before, who's been really instrumental in reviving interest in heritage and vintage Breitling, and and him and he'll be involved in, in reviving Universal Genève along with um, Universal Genève or <laughs> Breitling's creative director Sylvain Bernerone, who 
who's a great guy as well, along with his his own independent brand, Burnaround, will will be super involved in the revival of the brand. But over to you, Eric, for for your expert thoughts. Yeah, I've uh, been excited about this for a while. I was on the advisory panel for Brightling related to Universal Genève. We had a meeting in June where they announced this was all happening uh, with a few collectors. Um, so I, I, uh, I'm amazed it you know it stayed secret until now. There were no real leaks. There were some rumblings the last couple of weeks about it, but that was more from the Hong Kong side, is my understanding. So, uh, so it was more more impressive than even uh, the U.S. government in terms of avoiding leaks. But uh, I uh, was I'm very excited. I think there's obviously the biggest brand that is essentially dead in the vintage watch world by far. Uh, and Breitling didn't want to necessarily announce it now. I mean, they kind of wanted to announce it in conjunction with watches, but that's going to be quite a ways off uh, in terms of watch development. Um, we're talking, you know, a year or two years or somewhere down the road. It's going to be a while. Um, but Per kind of Hong Kong stock exchange rules, they had to announce it now because of the acquisition. And if they didn't announce it, it still would have been reported and they wouldn't have kind of controlled the narrative. So you might as well just take ownership of it. Uh, so, yeah, it's very, uh, very exciting. Obviously, there's a lot of different iconic Universal Genève models and styles from the 1930s, 1940s to the kind of 1960s models of the you know, Nina Rent and the evil Claptons and Claptons, et cetera. Very different styling uh, and just tremendous. Obviously, you've got full routers, the tricompax models, compax models. You know, in one sense, you you could say, why is Breitling doing this when they've got to focus on Breitling and Breitling's on the ascendancy? But such a great opportunity and they kind of have the infrastructure in place in terms of designers and movement development and things. It's not going to take them off course. Um, but of course there's like tons of messages on Instagram. Oh, please don't make it 15 millimeters thing thick and all that sort of stuff. It's a, you know, it's a menu of things that you have to achieve when you're building a watch, you know, part of it is, there's obviously expectations for water resistance today that there weren't back in the day. There's expectations around power reserve being automatic, you know, all these sorts of things. Some, you know, even though the collector community doesn't love date windows, there's a lot of buyers that like them. So you, you essentially have to pick and choose where you want to sacrifice, you know, water resistance and power reserve versus those, you know, those commercial factors. So I think, you know, they're going to come out with watches that are more commercially appealing and at the same time, make sure they do watches that are appealing to collectors, you know, which is a small subset of modern watch buyers at the end of the day. Um, you know, people don't need to be that concerned. Fred Mandelbaum is, you know, really a gift to the watch community and he's, always pushing for things that we all love, whether it's at Breitling or uh, at UG. So, you know, it's not rocket science at the end of the day where uh, I'm very optimistic for what they'll come out with. But 
you know, it's not going to please everyone. And if that what you want is vintage Universal Genève, then just buy a vintage Universal Genève from winvintage.com and you might be happier than waiting a few years for a modern reissue of something or inspired by watch, you know, just wear the vintage. Those things are sitting there too. No one's really buying them right now. So (laughs) you got your your pick. Yeah, yeah, not too many. Yeah, my impression is... uh, there are a lot of sort of commercial realities with a, a modern brand like like Breitling uh, that you just mentioned, date windows and thickness and automatic and blah, blah, blah. And that may not come with Universal Genève, a brand that's been essentially dead for a couple of generations now. I think they might be able to steer into the enthusiast stuff a little bit more. And as you mentioned, I think I kind of trust the folks there, as well as the sort of committee that they've formed or are forming to, to get that type of input. To, to be able to do things the right way. And it sounds like they're going to they're going to do that, not only aesthetically, but also also technically. And, you know, I, I do want to mention that Gabe finally joined us, uh, fresh off his ticket, speeding here to bring you the significant watches people his curmudgeonly takes. Gabe, I'm sure you've had some time to think about Universal Genève's acquisition by by Breitling. What's what's the curmudgeonly take on it? Um, I just think it makes sense. You know, I think, uh, I think we're seeing a lot of these acquisitions and we're going to see a lot more of them. Not surprised. You know, this is, uh, probably a good one for them. I, I think that the history is, is there and it's rather niche. I'm surprised that it would be in the $70 million acquisition price. That seems really hefty for a name. Um, especially a name that, as you say, has been dead for a couple of decades, but, um, yeah, you know, it's it, it, we'll see we'll see how they how they do it. I think there's definitely it's a there's good name recognition with UG, so we'll see we'll see what's up. But uh, you know, um, not 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 a whole lot more than that. I think it's it, we're going to see a lot more of it, which I'm not I don't hate, um, especially a brand like Breitling taking over UG with the resources that they have, and like you mentioned, Sylvain Bernard will be great. So I'm happy that they're the ones who ended up with it. Gabe, we'll let you finish blowing your leaves over there. Charlie, Eric, I've got a really important question for you. Uh, what is your favorite Universal Genève model uh, and perhaps one that you might hope that they start with? I think the most sensible area to start with is chronographs, particularly 60s, uh, 70s era. I think that's just an easy layup in terms of design. Probably not imagine they're going to go with the pole routers or the 50s models as their um, as their initial debuts. I think that the most logical one would be kind of tapping into that racing and sport-oriented uh, watches and maybe throw in some of the uh, tri-compaxes as well. That's kind of, I think, like where the most interest is in, in people that want to wear watches would be, um, you know, the romantic watches I think that I'm more fond of are going to be your, like, 19... 19- 40s and 50s with really uh, you know spectacular case making and and dial manufacturing, but I think that's kind of uh, a little bit more of the novelty pieces. I don't think the majority of people who are wanting to buy a 2024 or 2025 Universal Genève are going to be focused on getting um, you know tri compacts or uh, you know bi compacts watch for from 40s 50s. Just my my two cents. Uh, I think also the pole router thing is it's great. It's probably going to be an easier task to do, but it's it's just more obvious. I think sports chronograph is the way to go. 
Yeah, it was uh, Charlie and I are both bummed we were not invited to the pull router gathering back uh, in October uh, last year. Uh, but I only wrote about the pull router back in May 2010, as you said. But the, um, well, did I you, mean, I think. Did, well, did you write about it if it's a scrubbed from it's scrubbed from the internet? But we found it on the uh, the Wayback Machine. The Wayback Machine, thankfully. There's evidence. There is evidence of it happening. So, um, I think the, I think it, um, of course the that kind of teal dial tricompax is really special as well as the exotic. I sold uh-huh. Rob Stakey, Bazamu, an unbelievable exotic tricompax that I probably get asked about once a week if I can find one like that for for whoever randomly is asking me, and I say probably not. Uh, but uh, that's a really special kind of gray. Soleil sunburst dial with the white registers and Kevin O'Dell at they did has an unbelievable teal uh, exotic tricompacts as well. I really like 1930s and 1940s chronos and um, some of those tricompacts models from the 40s are unbelievable. We have a uh, yellow gold kind of two-tone dial one we just sold that is is shockingly good. Um, just very special things. One of my two of my kind of oddball UGs in my collection. I've got an alarm watch that was made by Volcane for them in steel, which I love. Obviously, I don't think that's going to be on the <laughs> initial uh, launch of, of Universal Genève uh, calibers. Uh, but I also have a really cool, almost like a tank centre with a blue dial, very large rectangular, actually automatic watch from the 70s, which is insane. Uh, I think they have a lot of interesting shape watches we don't really uh, appreciate or think about, and they sell for very little on eBay still. Some uglier than others, honestly, but you can play with shapes with UG, you know. But it's 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 easy. UG was really one of the top manufacturers, so they had their chronographs, they had their time onlys, they had time and date monodatics before the pole router came out. All kinds of interesting. Uh, models that you can use to really build a full-fledged company that offers entry-level time-only time with date to more complicated pieces with moon phases and calendars and chronographs. So uh, it's really, uh, it really is a treasure, as everyone said, and something, you know, that we've anticipated would happen at some point. Lots of people contacted UG over the last decade, asking them if they would sell, and the, some were too broke to afford it. Yeah, <laughs> and, you know, most of the time, the response was no way. The story was this guy bought it for his son as sort of a graduation gift or something. The company and his son never. They tried to relaunch it a few times unsuccessfully in the nineties and early two thousands, and spent a lot of money, and then no one wanted the watches, so they just kind of gave up on it. But um, I think uh, it's exciting. One of the other things that might be a challenge, too, if you do end up looking into the 1960s and 70s for designs, I think that UG will have to offer these things on strap only because the bracelets to redesign them, similar to what like this gay for you know, I, B I, style, I think that'll be a challenge to get the design right on them. I actually... We talked about bracelets, and we've talked about bracelets on this podcast before, but I think bracelets are probably a part of the plan and like very distinctive with for instance the 1960s tricompax things 
Um, George Kern appreciates good bracelets. He helped oversee the kind of famous bracelets IWC used on their Mark series of watches. Uh, so he, he realizes that's very important and it's got to be something somewhat distinctive that you can tell across the room as a UG. Uh, so I think, um, I think bracelets are, are part of the picture and, and rightly so. It'll be a lot more viable commercially if you come out with great bracelets. Yeah, I think what we're sort of hinting at here is it's got to be the whole package, right? The designs, the bracelets, the uh, the inside, the calibers as well. I mean, just to take an example, the pole router is such a great design, but it also had these great micro rotor movements that UG developed in the 50s. And how cool would it be to see them kind of bring back a real micro rotor movement in a way that not a lot of people are doing right now or not a lot of manufacturers are doing right now? And to put that in a, in a nice sort of classic pole router case with its liar lugs and something like that i mean would be would be absolutely gorgeous if that's the way that you're going to introduce the brand i think charlie's right though that the chronographs and stuff from the 60s might be sort of more commercially viable but whatever it is it has to be the entire package from the inside out to the to the bracelets as well and it's all there for you to do but it it has to be really considered and it sounds like they're they're on the right path though as well thinking about every single component of the watch and it's not just going to be a a rip off of a 60s design with a solita movement on some straps from whatever third party provider i don't think that's the goal here so you're saying that you want to see a micro rotor above the bumper in in a re-release of the bull router <laughs> would anyone buy a bumper watch in 2024 2025 probably yeah select few five people would might be in that market bumpers for for life sure uh well listen anything else we should say about universal geneve besides the fact that we're excited to see what what comes over the next few months yeah i think it's uh very exciting And, and one other big uh bit of exciting news is uh Charlie Dunn has been uh, promoted to vice president, the senior specialist at uh, Win Vintage, and uh, he wrote a great article about his uh, first Submariner in his collection, a reference 5512 on the Win Vintage blog. Uh, tell us a little bit about owning your Submariner, Charlie. Well, I certainly didn't buy it, if that's what you're saying. <laughs> no. Eric gave the me Christmas nice bonus sub. came early. Yeah, yes. Eric gave me a nice sub. It's sick. I love it. I like that. Uh, I wrote a little short story on it, some of which is embellished, some of which is true. The the uh, parts of where Eric is hounding me to get listings done is 100% true. Um, <laughs> the timing on some of the events is a little bit uh, mixed up, but it's, um, it's a great watch. I love it. Beautiful patina. I actually was interested because we were talking about this the other day, Eric. Um, the Submariner, you... You in your early days were looking for a Submariner, and then I was—I know that you had had two five five one twos in your collection over the years. No, a five five one three, yeah. a five five one three, and a five five one two. But before you had a five five one three, you were on the hunt for a sixteen eighty, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Can you tell me about the sixteen eighty? Because you you were telling me this story the other day when we were grabbing uh, dinner with uh, Charlie Wind at Guacago, which is a phenomenal small. Uh, chain in the west palm beach area everyone should definitely go and check it out but um the 1680 i didn't think you were a guy with that interest and and i was curious can you kind of walk me through the the origin story of young eric hunting uh hunting down a 1680 in new york city 
Yeah. So um, I think that's a theme when I talk to people, particularly those are who are not like in week one of collecting, but have been doing it for a little while. Your tastes evolve and change. Like young Gabe Benador wanting Panerize when he was in high school, for instance, or things that Tony might have wanted earlier in his collecting journey that after owning for a while, you realize it's not for you necessarily. So when I first got into watches, I really thought the red sub was the hot thing. And I saw a really attractive one, not really understanding condition when Ben Clymer and I were at a Sotheby's preview in 2010 in New York City. And uh, it was my first time bidding at auction. I registered and bid on the phone and was ultimately outbid. Um, you know, I was still still very green and not not sure how much to pay, etc. There so, wasn't really like a Chrono24 or all the dealer websites that exist today. So information was much harder to get around pricing. Um, but, you know, it was like there was nothing compared to what there is today. But um, were you going after was, was like how was the patina? Or I was liked, it pumpkin? I, yeah. So it was more of that pumpkin. Oh, which early on. I think a lot of people early in their collecting journey gravitate toward that. But then as time goes on, you realize other things are cooler. So it's like the collecting arc, which people have talked about. For a lot of people, it's you start with sport watches and then you gravitate toward more formal. And a lot of people are in the whole shape category and design category now of Cartier and other things. Charlie's, as we've talked about before, kind of done a Benjamin Button where he started with time onlys and now is with Rolex Sports. Uh, but um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's just interesting to see what I liked, you know, thirteen plus years ago versus versus now. And I think it'd be kind of an interesting series for us to do. Like Tony Trainer, what did you like when you were first into watches? Like you were super into the Nina Rint, but you've you sold it recently and are into other things now uh you had done a post tony when you were in new york of your perfect two watch collection uh after going out to uh dinner i think on a friday night um what was that for you well you know this changes on the daily right but i happened to be sitting next to one west wind collector's corner ny and he had his asymmetric on uh, his platinum asymmetric, I think a, a wind vintage special there. Yeah. Uh, and I had my, my 1016. And t- to me, that felt like uh, one, one potential perfect little two watch collection. Maybe, maybe Charlie's 5512 instead of the 1016, uh, if we're yeah. being honest. Um, like but, that. but something like that, that feels, feels just right. That's great. Are you going into sports? cases now for rolex you want something bigger than a than no a- no no this is all hypothetical charlie yeah. i'm saying if i had a, a, a asymmetric it, f- it would feel as though like the 10 you would want something a little more uh more more rugged and gentlemanly than a yeah a i guess you be yeah maybe yeah. i think 1016 still i think you plenty 10, rugged i think there's nothing better than a peak young young tony trainer <laughs> in a 1016 that's like with a Leica camera on top of that, oh, he's unstoppable. Unstoppable. Speaking of sure. Cartier, we went to the Cartier exhibit in Miami Beach, Florida. Time on it was Give us the report. How was it? It was so good. Really? What'd you see? It was lame. Uh, I was optimistic <laughs> because they had really promoted it heavily and had big parties and flew a lot of influencers down. Uh, it was 
How would you compare it to the Reverso Stories exhibition, Charlie? I didn't go to the Reverso Story, <laughs> but I did. How go dare to, they? I didn't they get should it. have paid for you to fly up to the Reverso Stories exhibition. Cartier could have paid my Brightline ticket down and <laughs> taken the or train, or just paid for the gas. No, the the Cartier one was okay. I mean, I salute them for having a tremendous amount of people waiting out. In the line, I mean, you had to sign up with um, your and cell phone, address. so they got tens of thousands yeah. of people in the email leads, which is incredibly there smart. Was a, there was a line of people outside. It was epic. And then when we walked past the um, Cartier Boutique later, there was a line out there, so that was sensible in terms of they got people out the door. I think that, like, for instance, when you walk around the Miami Beach Design District, one of the things that I'm always impressed with is seeing the Kith bags, everyone shopping at Kith. But at this time, um, the thing I was very impressed with was the Cartier exhibit and the lines outside. We went with our friend Rashawn Smith, um, Rashawn Smith and uh, his wife Mary. Yep, and his wife Mary, uh, Rashawn of uh, Risk Check Pod. His Instagram is uh, at Fit to Win, um, and he also sells Grand Seikos through what is it at Time, Time to Win? win. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we support. That's the only Grand Seiko uh, uh, flipper that we love and uh, hold dear to our heart. No, but um, the. The time exhibition, I thought, was, what was it, Time United or Time Unlimited? Unlimited. Time Unlimited. It was cool. Like, the amount of watches in the exhibition was, I think, it wasn't enough. It was disappointing. It was disappointing. There was, like, two or three vintage models. Um, There was also, like, some weird kind of, like, silent film by Jake Gyllenhaal. It was just really a despicable uh, (laughs) waste of time in that room. But the... um, They had two rooms dedicated. But they they built it up. It was a very nice... uh, it was very nice in terms of oh, the infrastructure. Only, yeah, it only goes through December 22nd. It's, it's cool. I would certainly encourage you to go, but I wouldn't encourage you, like, if you were a fan of vintage watches, to expect much beyond um, seeing a crash and some uh, polished normals and some stuff like that. But it it's cool. The it's, condition, it's, they had basically most of the current Cartier catalog available to view. And then in the central part of this room where they had the current watches, you purchase they had some vintage pieces which were shockingly polished like horribly polished some of the worst examples i've seen in terms of the jumbo cartier tank louis it looked like a mini it was so polished and uh just stuff that was atrocious uh the normals were very polished the only unpolished watch it seemed was they had a platinum crash from 92 the paris launch which looked sick with actually nice kind of scratches to the case it looked yeah. like it had been worn in a cool way um so that was the watch that most impressed me in terms of vintage and i would have i would have preferred to have seen like some of their heritage pieces on display that would have been well those were owned by cardia yeah i know but still there wasn't like a collection of like the, there wasn't the tongue cliche or anything like that like no. it's just there should have been more stuff i think but yeah. it, it is what it is and um, it was three floors that was where we probably spent the most time and we're still talking like 10 minutes or less, and then you walk through there's a Cartier Jake Gyllenhaal video, which was one of the dumbest things I've seen. Then you go to the third floor, and there were these watches that were like modern watches floating in these kind of tubes that they called jellyfish. Like oh, yeah, that was weird. Around. The Hugh and Blow, the Hugh Blow displays where they like the fly up in the rapid. That would have been way cooler. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was ingenious, the way that those were displayed, whereas this one I didn't think was that great. Yeah. Um, those are uh, 
Hublot's LVMH, so they still have that trademark on that. Yes. Richemont. But then you go to the second floor, and it's really, they've got this kind of mirror area, which everyone's taking photos in. It was really just a lot of photos kind of for people that were influencers or stuff to post on Instagram and look cool, and they've got a little dancing area. Uh, and they take your video and that's about it. And you walk out and you go, wow, that was fast. Uh, so not a lot of data or information. I thought the Reverso exhibition much more interesting in terms of things that got me excited and was looking at the registers, getting very excited or interactive stuff. But uh, I would applaud them that they had a line of people outside the door wanting to go inside. It's yeah. super, super cool. And I think probably met their expectations of making Cartier cool, particularly during Art Basel. So Miami was yeah. super, super busy and uh, was something to see in the design district. Sure. I've got to say that video of you dancing with Rashawn was one of my favorite bits from, from the internet over the past week. I met Rashawn and, and Perry, the wrist check guys in New York last week. Uh, super cool guys. Glad to finally meet them in person. Uh, and great to see you guys just dancing at Cartier. Yeah. Love to see Char- it. bringing people Char- together. Charlie to be part of it, but he pieced out. He said he couldn't handle. It. Couldn't handle it anymore. <laughs> handle it too much polishing. He didn't want to. Uh, he didn't want to be in the video. I didn't want to give Cartier my email address either, so I gave him a fake one. Burner. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. That's another another episode of Significant Watches. Any PSs you want to add before we close it out? You. Uh, should we? Yeah, leave a review. Written leave review. review. Otherwise, we won't be doing more podcasts in 2024. You've got to leave a review now. Otherwise, this might all end and fold like a house of cards. Also, uh, maybe we should do one more episode before the end of 2023 with like our awards, Significant Watches Awards for favorite things that we saw this year. Kind of a recap. Let's or give- should we just stop? And this is the last one for Let's we can do a quick award show. Let's do the antithesis of an award show where we just roast people. Yeah. Like, we could just give out coal. We could call it the coal awards. I like that. Just give out things that we hated in 2023. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be more interesting for the audience. You guys let us know in the comment section of this post. Should we do the coal awards, the awards? Or the stocking stuffers. Yeah. Yeah. The let us program. know what awards we should give out no yeah. way yeah. or not give out that's good uh gabe last thoughts because you weren't here for the auction recap section uh while you were paying you know getting your speeding ticket your ferrari uh what uh what was your highlight of auction week new york uh, I don't know. I just had a lot of fun at Sotheby's. I thought it was it was nice to see a lot of familiar faces. A lot of people kind of just came together. Um, my dad was causing all kinds of trouble. He came and and uh, prompted me to bid, and then you know we had a nice moment. And I was bidding on some stuff, and he thought it was going too high, so he grabbed the paddle away from me a couple of times. And you know <laughs> the auctioneers at Sotheby's, at Sotheby's just kept razzing me the whole time because you know they have. The pastries and I was eating pastries while bidding and they were just <laughs> ruthless with me but uh yeah it was overall it was it was it was a much more relaxed auction I thought so that was good and I got two watches there so not you know not the worst outcome from the hammer collection and you know I didn't I didn't feel like I overpaid that much so that was nice um 
that's pretty much it. You know, I think I think uh, you guys covered the rest. So that's my two cents. Uh, yeah, your father was not what I would have expected. He was a very small French guy with maybe a five inch wrist, and uh, you know, made you look like a gladiator. Uh, in terms of how big and tough you are, he's a very slight little man, uh, but just a true gentleman. It was such a nice thing meeting him and speaking with him. So that was uh, that was definitely one of my highlights of the week as well. Thanks. Awesome. Well, with that, thank you so much, everyone. And uh, let us know if we should do another episode. Make sure you leave a review. Thank you.